Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, May 19th through Sunday, the 22nd, feature guest conductor Karina Kanalakis, joined by pianist Kirill Gerstein in a program including Augusta Reed Thomas's Brio in its first Chicago Symphony Orchestra performances, Robert Schumann's Piano Concerto in A Minor, and after intermission, A Hero's Life, Ein Heldenleben by Richard Strauss. Here are Philip Huscher's program notes on the Schumann Piano Concerto in A Minor, a work lasting about 31 minutes. When, in 1828, at the age of 18, Robert Schumann began his piano studies with Friedrich Wieck, Wieck's daughter, Clara, was just nine and already a prodigy. Perhaps she peeked in on her father's lessons as Robert played Hummel's A Minor Concerto, his first assignment. Eighteen years later, Robert Schumann would unveil his own A minor piano concerto played by his young bride, the same Clara, now grown up and a major talent. We wouldn't know from this effortless and exuberant music that their wedding in September 1840 met with their father's fierce disapproval, or that Schumann had been struggling to write a concerto for nearly twenty years. As early as 1827, Schumann's diary mentions the beginnings of a piano concerto in F minor. That piece was completed in 1830 in a version for piano alone and published as his Opus 1, the Abegg Variations, named for the young woman who held Robert's affections before Clara. There's evidence of work on another piano concerto in D minor the year before his marriage to Clara. Then, Secure in the strength of his love, following the extraordinary outpouring of song in the months surrounding his wedding, Schumann dashed off a fantasy in A minor for piano and orchestra, a one-movement work written in little more than a week. Clara played through the piece at a reading rehearsal in the Leipzig Gewandhaus in August 1841. She gave birth to their first child, Marie, barely two weeks later, establishing the balance of career and family she would maintain for many years. The first year of his marriage was a remarkably productive period for Schumann. Within a matter of weeks, he wrote his first two symphonies, began other orchestral works, and turned his attention to opera and then chamber music, while the fantasy sat on a shelf unpublished for some time. In the summer of 1845, Schumann composed a rondo finale and a middle movement to go with the fantasy to complete the piece we now know as his piano concerto in A minor. Clara gave the first performance of the concerto at the Leipzig Gewandhaus on New Year's Day, 1846. This A minor concerto owes a debt to the concertos by Moscheles and Hommel rather than to the Viennese models of Mozart and Beethoven. Schumann calls it something between symphony, concerto, and grand sonata. It's not any of those, but an extensive work for piano solo with an indispensable orchestral commentary. Schumann ignores the powerful drama and delicate balance of orchestra and piano favored by Mozart and Beethoven. His orchestration is conveniently transparent, allowing the spotlight to fall on the piano in the opening measures and never shift thereafter. The concerto reflects the ebullient, unforced lyricism that marks Schumann's work at its best. It is, in Donald Tovey's admiring opinion, recklessly pretty. Although it relies on sonata form, the first movement was written as a fantasy, 
not as the opening of a concerto, and so it doesn't feature the double exposition, one for orchestra alone, another in which the solo joins, common to early 19th century concertos. It opens with a flamboyant piano flourish that establishes the prominence of the piano solo and continues with a plaintive four-note descending motif that will tie all three movements together. Although this is essentially the same motif often associated with longing and farewell in Schumann's other music from this period, here it finds a home in one of the sunniest, most untroubled works ever written in a minor key. The texture is a tapestry of brilliant, endless filigree in the piano part, woven with the strong strands of melody which periodically emerge in other instruments. After the first orchestral outburst, the piano ventures into the unexpected key of A-flat to meditate at length on the first motif, now as expansive and eloquent as a Chopin nocturne. Schumann had already done an outright Chopin imitation in one section of Carnival. After a fairly standard recapitulation, the piano gathers momentum and plays on right through music designed for orchestra alone into a grand written-out cadenza. Finally, orchestra and piano march off together with a snappy version of the main theme which retreats into the distance, though the piano lingers to provide the final cadence. The second movement begins with awkward exchanges between piano and orchestra, the halting, careful conversation of recent acquaintances. A lovely swinging theme that appears in the cello brings the movement to life. The conversation starts up again, but is interrupted by ghostly reminders of the concerto's opening four-note motif, and then, without pause, by the full force of the finale's rondo theme. The finale has nearly a thousand measures of music, but it flies by as one coherent, nearly breathless statement. In addition to the boldly assertive rondo theme itself, Schumann tosses out a number of felicitous tunes, some like his most characteristic melodies, rhythmically playful enough to discourage a tapping foot. After a final orchestral reprise of the rondo theme, the piano launches an extensive coda, which seems quite reluctant to bring such exuberance to an end. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Schumann's Piano Concerto in A Minor. And now on to A Hero's Life. Ein Heldenleben, music by Richard Strauss. The work lasts about 46 minutes. In 1898, after lending music of lasting brilliance to heroes taken from the pages of Shakespeare, Nietzsche, and Cervantes, and to two great legendary characters, Don Juan and Till Eulenspiegel, Richard Strauss could think of no other subject more suitable than himself. At the top of his last great tone poem, he wrote Ein Heldenleben, A Hero's Life or a Heroic Life, leaving little doubt of the title character's identity. As Strauss told Romain Rolland, I do not see why I should not compose a symphony about myself. I find myself quite as interesting as Napoleon or Alexander. The mention of Napoleon was no coincidence, because Ein Heldenleben was Strauss's response to the Eroica, Beethoven's Napoleon-inspired symphony, admittedly without a funeral march, yet in E-flat, with lots of horns, which are always a yardstick of heroism. Those who knew Strauss 
thought him an unlikely hero. There was nothing about him, apart from his own dazzling music, to compare with the bold and fearless character who throws open the first pages of the score and then holds our attention for one enormous paragraph of music, 116 measures of nonstop orchestral exhibitionism that Strauss labels the hero. The moment of silence that follows is broken by the squabbling of the woodwinds introducing the hero's adversaries. This is Strauss's depiction of his critics, and it is rendered with such hatred, Strauss requests snarling oboes and hissing cymbals, that we would think he had never received a good review in his life. In fact, aside from his first opera, Guntram, Strauss probably had read more glowing reviews of his music than any other major composer of the day. Next, we meet Strauss's wife, Paulina Strauss de Anna, an accomplished soprano who sings here with the voice of a solo violin. Richard had met Paulina de Anna in the summer of 1887 when his uncle suggested he give lessons to the neighbor's daughter, a young woman with a generous voice and a boisterous temperament. She needed coaching and discipline. She found romance instead. Paulina was a complex woman, wildly impetuous and often fractious and stubborn, but Richard quickly realized he couldn't live without her. She gave him advice and encouragement, and she was the only critic who mattered to him. She is the spice that keeps me going, the composer later told their children. As Strauss admitted, Paulina was a very complicated subject to portray, different each minute from what she was a minute earlier. The hero's companion, as Strauss calls this mercurial section, is a full-length portrait, and it is not always complimentary. Certainly, Paulina noticed that her husband painted himself in a warm, flattering light, while her violin solo is marked at various points flippant, angry, and nagging. But no one who knew Paulina ever took issue with Richard's appraisal, though many wondered why she put up with such treatment. Years later, when she was portrayed in an even less complimentary way in the opera Intermezzo, she told the soprano Lottie Lehman, who sang her role, I don't give a damn. Nevertheless, theirs was a great love match, and sumptuous love music soon overpowers her voice and encompasses the entire orchestra. The hero's adversaries again raise their sharp voices, and he prepares to attack. The battle scene is noisy and thrillingly chaotic for a very long stretch, and for many years this was one of the most notoriously difficult passages in all music. The technical advances of the ensuing years have scarcely softened its impact. Gradually, the hero is strengthened by thoughts of love, and he rises above his adversaries. A broad ascent to victory is marked by the return of the opening theme, now at full cry, and the Eroica horns Strauss promised. The way they dart around the big tune is particularly bold. At the climax, the horns let loose with the great vaulting signature tune from Don Juan, prompting the appearance of other themes from Don Juan and also Schmack Zarathustra before the music gradually fades. In a quiet daydream, a gently swaying barcarolle, Strauss recalls music from all his previous tone poems, as well as many of his songs, and even, or perhaps most pointedly, the failed Guntram. These are the hero's works of peace. 
Of course, I haven't taken part in any battles, Strauss wrote to his publisher years later, but the only way I could express works of peace was through themes of my own. The critics reappear briefly, Strauss rises up against them in one last tirade, and the final section is labeled The Hero's Escape from the World and Fulfillment. The music now slips into a simple pastoral with an English horn calling out over a quiet drum tap. The violins repeatedly hint at a new theme, which finally rises from total silence, a melody so noble and disarming that we do not recognize it as the same sequence of notes first uttered rather ineloquently by Paulina. It's one of Strauss's greatest themes, all the more moving for coming so near the end, like a grand benediction. There is one last disruptive assault from the critics, and then the loving voice of Paulina, obviously quite undone by some of her husband's most sublime music. Ein Heldenleben wasn't the last of Strauss's family portraits. Five years later, with the Domestic Symphony, he became the 20th century's first realist painter, depicting life at home with Paulina, bathing the baby, making love, quarreling with surgical precision and in painstaking detail. Strauss boasted that he had reached the point where he could differentiate musically between a knife and a fork. And with the operatic comedy Intermezzo, even Strauss wondered if he had gone too far, blurring the line between public and private in ways that made audiences uncomfortable and angered his own family. Today, of course, it's easier to view Ein Heldenleben as an innocent orchestral fantasy, simply to enjoy its abundant musical pleasures. Strauss's hero and his companion are still vividly real, but they aren't real-life people to us. As the art historian Ernst Gombrich wrote, the consummate artist conjures up the image of a human being that will live on in the richness of its emotional texture when the sitter and his vanities have long been forgotten. Both Richard and Paulina Strauss have now been dead for more than half a century. Among the dozens of Strausses in the Munich phone book, there is still a Richard, the composer's grandson, born 28 years after Ein Heldenleben premiered. Another grandson, Christian, lives down the road from the Strauss family house in Garmisch. They are the only people who could conceivably care how their family is portrayed in Heldenleben. For the rest of us, this music holds the same fascination as any great portrait. For a few moments, we feel we actually know these people. We enjoy the thrill of peering into another time and place, and then we return to our own lives. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Richard Strauss's A Hero's Life, Ein Heldenleben. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening. Music